Okay, so uh, this morning is the final part uh, in our series, uh, Your Cross Changes Everything. Uh, we've been taking time to look at the significance of the cross uh, over the last uh, three weeks or so. We've been using the chorus of a song we just sung as a sermon series plan. Uh, so the first week we spent time thinking about a cross that changes everything. We looked at Romans chapter 7, we thought about grace and the reality that God's gift is really is God's gift. It's not anything that we have achieved or done. It's all that Christ has done for us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spent time looking at a love that sets the captives free. And TJ was looking at Luke chapter 4 and how we are free. We become free men and women because of the reality of the cross. We're no longer burdened or overwhelmed by sin. We are free to then live for Jesus and love him with all that we are. And then last week, we were thinking about hope, a hope that resurrected me. And we spent some time looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 to 5 and how hope really is one of those central themes in the Bible that really it helps us to live a life fully and completely for him. Our eyes are looking ahead to eternity, not upon this life, but upon the life to come. And this morning, as our final part in our series, we're thinking about and the power of God for all who believe. The power of God for all who believe. And these words are taken from Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 through to 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to this passage. The words are going to be up on the screen. Uh, again, if you want a paper copy, there's some up at the back there. I'm reading from the CSB, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, so Paul writes uh, these words for us in verses 16 uh, and 17. Uh, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word uh, this morning. Uh, this morning, these verses are two verses that really get to the heart of what the Christian faith is all about. Really, if you're to understand what Christianity is, then I would invite you to look at Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 to 17. And when I say Christianity, eh, I'm not talking about the religion of Christianity. I'm not talking about all the different ceremonies or the steeples, the smells and bells and all the different traditions. When I say Christianity, I'm talking about relationship, a relationship with Jesus. What it means to know Jesus in a deep and personal way what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples, what it means to know Christ and what it means to make Christ known. So much of Christianity is just a superficiality. It's just based upon man's tradition. And we can see this even in our city. There's so many people who would call themselves Christians, but it's based on this, this activity they do on a Sunday. They just turn up on a Sunday and they apply their Christian faith to the different things that they attend or do. But what we're all about here at Denison Baptist Church is a love relationship with Jesus. What it looks like to receive and to experience the love of God in your life. And what then results from that? If you experience God's love, then something's going to change. There's going to be a difference in your life. You're going to respond by loving God with all that you are. You're going to respond by loving people as much as you love yourself. John uh, in the New Testament says this, we love because he first loved us. And that's so true. We love today if we have faith in Christ 
Because Christ first loved us. It's not based upon our own personal love that we achieve. It's based upon this love that's been achieved for us through the cross. So may that be true for every single one of us this morning. That our love flows from God's love. It's not something that we're trying to muster up or manufacture. It's something that God gives to us. And it's something that we live every single day. It's really rooted in the work of the Spirit in our lives. We choose to love God. We choose to love God. We choose to love God because he first loved us in our lives. So to understand this love, if we're to try and come to terms with the significance of God's love for us, then we need to understand the gospel. Um, Our passage gives us a very clear definition of what the gospel is all about. Uh, For the Christian, the gospel is both head and heart. It's something we can recognise, agree with in our heads. But it's also something that we live and breathe. The gospel is something that is alive in our hearts. The reality that Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And because of this, we can repent of our sin and we can believe and have life. That's the gospel. And the gospel is something we affirm mentally, but it's something that we live and breathe. This is why if you are a Christian today, I would encourage you just to spend every day reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel. Every single day, asking God through prayer, through his word, God, remind me afresh of what it is you have done for me in my life. It's important we spend time in prayer. It's important we spend time reading the Bible. But I would also encourage you to spend time singing, to spend time in song every day. Because this is how the gospel, the gospel comes alive in our hearts. If we sing gospel truth in our life, then we experience this heart understanding of what it is that God has done for us. And so you might want to use Mission Praise, Believer's Hymn Book, Apple Music, Spotify, whatever it is that you choose, go for it. Just take some time alone or even on a bus or somewhere else, somewhere public, and just sing of who God is, sing of what he has done for us. This is when the truth of who God is goes from your head to your heart and you end up living it out with all that you are. So my recommendation, sing the gospel every single day. You'll be amazed at the difference that makes. And we have to do this at the beginning of our day because every day is a battle. If you love Jesus, then you'll know the experience of spiritual opposition. You face a challenge and a battle every day. The enemy is not happy that you're following Christ. And so you need to fight back with Christ's weapons, his word, prayer, worship, all these ways in which we can overcome the attacks of the evil one. This is something that Paul recognised, this idea of being in a battle. And it's why he writes what he writes in the opening line of our passage. In the first part of verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So Paul doesn't just write this in a vacuum. He's not just randomly saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's a really important reason why he puts this. Now don't misunderstand, it's not a double negative. Paul's not making this a positive. He's not saying, I'm proud of the gospel. Paul was proud of the gospel. But this is not what he's saying in this verse. He's emphasising the fact that he's not ashamed. He's wanting to make the point here. I'm not ashamed. There is absolutely no shame when it comes to my understanding of the gospel and the difference it's made to my life and the difference it can make to each one of us. So why would Paul say this? Why would Paul 
bring up this subject of shame in the gospel and why would he say I'm not ashamed of it? Well, I want to suggest three reasons why Paul would respond to this. The first reason is this, what comes before uh, verse uh, 16? That word for, so Paul says for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That word for is a linking word. Whenever you see for in the Bible, it connects what happens after the word for with what happens before the word for. And so Paul is wanting to connect what he's about to say with what he has just said. To understand why Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is to understand the before. And it's to understand verses 14 and 15 of our passage. So let's have a look together at verses 14 to 15, and the words will be up on the screen. Paul says, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul is connecting that passage with, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul in effect says here, I feel this burden, this deep burden to preach the gospel. I owe people the opportunity to share with them the truth of the gospel. And it doesn't matter who they are. Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish. I have to speak this gospel truth to people. And it's in that sense, in that sense, I'm not ashamed. I have to tell everyone the reality of the gospel. I have this gospel debt to pay. And in that sense, I'm not ashamed of what Christ has done. Paul says I'm not ashamed because of the context and also because of our second reason. The second reason is this, our society is so often ashamed of the gospel. doesn't matter what culture that we're in, whether it's in Paul's day or today, our society is so often ashamed of the reality of the gospel. No matter what time in history, no matter what culture, our society rejects the gospel. This word ashamed in the Greek can also mean offence. So you could say, I'm not offended by the gospel. What Paul is getting at here is that the gospel and the cross, the resurrection, are an absolute offence to so many people. The gospel is an offence. Know that this morning. Let me suggest three types of people that the gospel offence and the gospel has offended each one of us at different points in our lives. But generally, the gospel offends often three types of people. The first one, the gospel offends uh, moral people. The gospel offends moral people. It offends people who think that their own personal moral achievements make them right with God. They believe that they are a good person in the eyes of themselves, in the eyes of the world in the eyes of God, because of things that they have achieved. The gospel offends moral people. And number two, the gospel offends independent people. People who want to be their own boss. People who choose to be independent, separate, who carry their own autonomy. People who refuse to submit to a higher power. The gospel is an offence to these people. And number three, the gospel offends comfortable people. The gospel says that salvation was achieved through Jesus suffering and serving and that to follow Jesus means we must also suffer, we must also serve. So people who want an easy and comfortable life are offended by this call to suffer and to serve with Jesus. 
They do not want to take up a cross and to follow him. So the gospel is an offence. We need to understand this. It's not a popular message. If we were to declare the truth of the gospel in a very outright and verbal way, then you would recognise there's going to be opposition in that moment. You're going to experience hostility and anger and rejection. It's not only our culture that can be ashamed. Let's be honest this morning. We can be ashamed too. We can experience shame when it comes to the gospel, which is the third reason Paul wrote this, because he himself was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and first and foremost, he's speaking to himself. The preacher James Stewart once said, there's no sense declaring you're ashamed of something, or you're not ashamed of something, unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. There's no sense in declaring you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. Jesus recognised this. He recognised this was a sin issue for people. This is a temptation that everybody faces, including ourselves. And he said in Mark 8, 38, and the words will be up on the screen, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Paul, writing to Timothy, also uh, said this, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. And in verse 12, he reiterates again, But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. I just think of that hymn when I read that verse. Um, but God has entrusted this amazing truth to us, and because of that, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. There is no shame. But at the same time, he recognises there's going to be moments, there's going to be situations in your life where you will be tempted to be ashamed. I can think of situations in my own life where I was ashamed. God's grace is bigger than that shame. God has shown his love and his mercy and it's the same for each one of us. In those moments where you feel shame because of the gospel, understand that God's grace is bigger, God's mercy is bigger. Understand this morning there is a spiritual battle going on. You know, the devil wants you to be ashamed of the gospel. He knows if you're ashamed of the gospel, how on earth can you share this truth with people? If you're ashamed of anything in your life, there's absolutely zero chance that you're going to share that with someone else. How can you share about something that you're ashamed of? Being ashamed of the gospel prevents you from fulfilling the calling you have. The calling for each one of us is to go and make disciples. But there's no way, there's absolutely no way that you can go and make disciples if you carry shame around the gospel. God calls us to be free, to rejoice in the reality of who he is and to embrace the truth of what he has done for us. Well, Paul continues in the second part of verse 16. We read, he's not ashamed of the gospel and then he explains why. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So Tim Keller says that what Paul writes here is both boundless and it's bounded. So it's boundless 
and boundaried, both at the same time. Boundless, the gospel is available to everyone. Every single person has the opportunity to believe the reality of what Christ has done for them. We read in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everyone to come to that place of faith in him. Romans 1.20, a wee bit further down in our passage, uh, Paul uh, says this, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So, everyone, all people, are without excuse. Everyone has opportunity to discern and recognise that Jesus is Lord. Everyone has opportunity to respond to the good news. But at the same time, so the gospel is boundless, and at the same time the gospel is also boundaried. It is boundaried. The reality is that not everybody responds to the good news in faith. We know this. Not everyone in Denison, not everyone in Glasgow, not everyone in Scotland, not everyone in Europe knows Jesus for themselves. Many people have heard this truth and rejected it. The gospel is the power of God for all people who believe. It's conditional. Faith has such an essential role to play. All people can hear the gospel, but it is only those who believe, who experience the truth of the gospel. It doesn't matter who you are. Anyone who believes will receive this power. Anybody. It doesn't matter what cultural circumstance or background or situation we have come from. It doesn't matter. Everyone has the opportunity to put our faith and trust in Christ. This is why Paul writes here first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Faith is a great leveller. Nobody is worthy of God's grace. Everyone, no matter how important or how insignificant, has opportunity to turn to God in our life. In the 19th century, uh, Queen Victoria, uh, after attending a service in St Paul's Cathedral, uh, asked our chaplain, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? Just a wee photo of him. Uh, the evangelist John Townsend heard of the Queen's inquiry and wrote a letter to the Queen, which in it contained these words, I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of scripture, John 3.16, Romans 10, 9-10, and he continued, These passages prove that there is full assurance of salvation by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe and accept his finished work. The Queen replied a couple of weeks later to John Townsend, Your letter of recent date I received and in reply would state that I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Signed, Victoria Gelf. So, hold on to this thought for a moment. So about 140 years ago, the most important person in Great Britain, the most important, the most powerful person in the world, had a living faith in Jesus, Queen Victoria. She believed in Christ's cross and in his resurrection. Around the same time, 
Joseph Merrick, also known as the Elephant Man, came to believe in Jesus' finished work in the cross for him. Joseph Merrick was born in Leicester and he began to develop abnormalities in the first few years of his life. As a young man, because of his severe abnormalities, he ended up being exhibited in London in a freak show. So people in London would pay a penny to go and see him. He was regarded by Victorians as a freak, the bottom of the bottom of society. And when the show was closed, he ended up touring with a circus around Europe. And in his latter years, he lived in London Hospital. So his life was characterised by pain, suffering, rejection, humiliation, and yet he was not ashamed of the gospel. He knew that it was the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Joseph Merrick had a living faith in Jesus. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead were real and were alive to him. Now, understand this. In the 19th century, how people responded when they met Queen Victoria was very, very different to how people responded when they met the elephant man, Joseph Merrick. What they said, what they didn't say, how they dressed, what they did when they were in each of these individuals' presence would have been very, very different. And yet the amazing thing about the gospel is that it does not see people as the world sees them. So God looked at Queen Victoria and at Joseph Merrick, both equally as sinners in need of God's grace. Both stand in the presence of a holy God in desperate need. Both will experience firsthand the power of Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. See, the gospel blows away all human status. Queen Victoria is no longer Queen Victoria in eternity. The elephant man is no longer the elephant man in eternity. For both children of God. God sees people for who they really are, not based upon external status. You know, if someone was a millionaire who walked in on a Sunday morning to Denison Baptist Church, and we also had someone from the Belgrove Hotel walk in, I would hope, my heart's prayer would be that we would treat both people in the exact same way, because God sees them exactly the same. The world would respond in a different way to each of these individuals. But my hope is, with eternity in our mind, we would respond in the same way. We would see people as God sees them. Sinners in need of God's grace. What that means for each one of us is that it leaves you today, it leaves me today with no excuse. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what background you've came from. You can be one of the most respected people in society or one of the most rejected people in society. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you declare with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved today. Salvation is now, not tomorrow, it's today. So let me encourage you, if you've not yet done so, believe in Jesus today. It doesn't matter who we are, what we've achieved, what we've not achieved. God looks at our hearts and he calls us to respond in faith. Paul continues in our passage in the first part of verse 17 with this powerful statement, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. question I want to ask as we think of this verse, what is the righteousness of God? It's a phrase that you hear a lot of in the New Testament. What does it mean? 
when Paul here speaks of the righteousness of God being revealed, what is he getting at? Uh, John Stott in his commentary in Romans provides a really helpful summary of what theologians have believed God's righteousness is all about and, and specifically as it relates to this passage. The righteousness of God can be all about, number one, divine attribute. The righteousness of God is speaking of his character, who he is and his actions, what God does is righteous. God's actions are always in line with God's character. And so the righteousness of God is regarded by many to be the identity of God. His divine attribute is who God is. God is righteous, just as God is holy. Number two, divine activity. That being the righteousness of God manifests itself in the salvation of God. So God demonstrates his own righteousness by saving a people for himself. And number three, divine achievement. This is what God has achieved for us. So we understand the righteousness of God when we understand what we have become as a result of who he is. His righteousness is now our righteousness. So this verse would very clearly allude to this. God's righteousness has been revealed. So as God is righteous, we are righteous. As God is holy, we are holy. As God loves, we also love. We have been changed, transformed, we become new creations. The righteousness of God as divine achievement makes the most sense in light of our passage. Think of the righteousness of God being like a team of skilled workers going into a rundown and derelict property and completely refurbishing a space so that it looks amazing. It's completely transformed, it's brand new. The internal presentation of the space, which looks new and completely transformed, now becomes a reflection of the gifts and talents of the individuals who worked in that space. So when we become new creations, we have different desires and we choose to live for Jesus in our life. It becomes a mirror, a reflection of who God is. His righteousness is our righteousness. And as we have joy and love and peace, it's pointing people to who God is. And we see this emphasis on faith in the second part of verse 17. So Paul speaks here of righteousness and he moves on to talk about faith. Paul writes that the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So this verse is speaking of the origin of faith, meaning that faith starts with God. So when he says faith to faith, he's talking about faith starting with God and ending with God as Christ is in us. It's also speaking of the spread of faith. If we have faith, then we want to share that with other people. So faith to faith to faith to faith. It's speaking of the growth of faith. We become more and more Christ-like. We grow more and more in our faith. And it's also alluding to the importance of faith. So it's really talking about the primacy of faith in our life. So faith to faith is referring to what is of greatest importance. The Christian life is one of faith all the time. We live and breathe faith. It's not like we have faith in certain moments and then choose to then do things on our own strength. That is a temptation, that is something that we can do. But to be truly Christian, to, be, to truly live for Jesus, is to live a, live a life of faith in every season and in every situation. Everything has to be faith. And it's because of what Paul says in Romans 14 
in verse 23. Everything that is not from faith is sin. I find that a real challenge. Paul says, everything that is not from faith is sin. If I'm not preaching right now in faith, then I'm sinning. That's, that's a conviction. That's a challenge. If you're not listening right now in faith, then that is sin. God calls us to listen, to follow him, to pursue him, to do all the different small jobs in our week, to do it all in faith. If you're not washing the dishes in faith, then that's sin. If you're not treating it as an act of worship to him, everything has to be faith. We, we are called to practice his presence every day and every moment of every day. You know, if we think we can work everything out, if we look at our lives and think, okay, I'm going to, you know, do this on my own strength and then I'll need God's strength in this situation. If we kind of compartmentalise our Christian life, then it's not who God calls us to be. He calls us to be completely trusting in him in every moment. We live with that unknown, unknown element. We're not sure what's going to happen. This ties in with a, a video I shared uh, a paper was talking about this this idea, this, this definition of faith and he alluded to Hebrews 11 verse 8 the writer to the Hebrews says by faith Abraham when he was called obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, he went out even though he did not know where he was going so Abraham stepped out and he had no scooby, no idea what was going to happen that's faith. God calls us to step out and you've got no idea what's going to happen next but you're trusting that God knows. You're trusting that God's going to be with you in that situation. You're trusting that God's going to give you the strength and the grace that you need. If you only do things that you know then that's not grown in Christ. By faith you do not know what's going to happen this year. Nobody knows What's going to happen in the rest of this year? We could face tragedy. We could experience tremendous blessing. Nobody knows, but we know that God knows. And we know that God is with us through that. By faith, put your name in that verse, by faith, Mark, when he was called to do dot, 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 did not know where he was going, but he trusted God. This is why the cross changes everything because it's the power of God to all who believe and it opens a door. When you believe, it opens a door to a life of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Every day has to be a day of faith. If it's not a day of faith, then it's a day of sin. A couple of questions for you. What are the things preventing you from living that life of faith? So what are the areas in your life that are hindering you from living that life of faith? And what are the what-ifs in your life? What are the things that you're saying, you know, what if this happens, or that happens, or this happens, and that becomes almost an inhibitor, that prevents you from then living for Jesus. Whenever you say, what if, you're not believing in God. You're not trusting in his goodness and his faithfulness. The what-if that is strongest in your life more often than not, will be a lie from the devil. It will be something that the devil has feeded in your heart. 
And you need to declare, you need to reject that lie in Jesus' name. And you need to embrace the truth. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And verbalise it. You know, this is something I do often. If I'm believing a lie, I know it's a lie. I'll, I'll pray out loud and I'll say, I reject this lie in Jesus' name. I had to do it this morning. I reject this lie in Jesus' name. And I embrace this truth that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So do that. Practice it. God calls us to a very practical life. The gospel is a very practical thing. Let us in faith trust God with all that we are. You know, it's the only way you become a healthy Christian. It's the only way you become a content Christian if you're stepping out into areas that are quite scary. When you live a life of faith, you step into the unknown, but you know that God knows. This is something we're doing as a church right now. We're, we're making inquiries, we're knocking on doors about this space in Duke Street. And there's many occasions where I'll go, man, this, this is huge, this is massive. I don't know how we are going to manage this. But I know that God knows. And I know God's just calling us just to make that next step. You know, none of us know the ten steps ahead of us. But we know the next step that God calls us to. We know that God is in control and that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a purpose to make us more and more Christ-like. So as we think of that space, we're just making the next step. We had a meeting with the Baptist Union, with the surveyor this week. We're going to have a meeting with Glasgow City Council at some point over the next few weeks. That's just the next step. I don't know what the step after that will be, but hopefully I will know after I've made that first step. God is in control. God's calling you to reject these what-ifs in your life and to make that next step, trusting that he's going to bless you and he's going to provide for you. So if there's a what-if that's heavy on your heart this morning, I just want to invite you to come forward during this time of worship and to, to receive prayer for that, to let go of that what-if and to believe in Jesus. Maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Christ this morning. Then again, there is opportunity in this space at the front to believe in Jesus, to believe that he is faithful and just. He will cleanse you of all sin and he will fill you with his goodness, his righteousness. So if there's a what if in your heart that you want to just give to God this morning, then I invite you to come forward during this time of worship and to respond in that way. And if you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, again, opportunity to do that. We want this to be a place where God's presence dwells and where salvation occurs, where people recognise who they are, they recognise who Christ is and they know that God has the very best for them. And that's true for any one of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. We know how God has been faithful. God has led us through so many difficult seasons and so many blessed times. And he's used all of these moments to make us more Christ-like. May that be true for each one of us. Let me pray and then we're going to respond and worship. Lord, we do love you and we do thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we have opportunity this morning and this week to be very practical, uh, to let go of the what-ifs in our life and to trust that you are in control, that you are going to lead us in the way forward, that you are going to bless us as a church family. As we think of that space, we ask that you provide for us in that way. And we also think personally, Lord, we think of situations in our life where we do face difficulty and, and worry and concern and anxiety. 
And we just want to let go of his what ifs, Lord, and we want to pursue you. And we pray, Lord, that this would be a place where we can be honest with one another and that we can experience your love and grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.